And uh, I hope you got a Bible. We're going to be in First John. First John, that's little uh, John toward the back of the Bible. Um, John wrote Revelation, but he also wrote three uh, little, um, little letters that uh, are right before, tucked away there at the end of the New Testament. So First John, we're going to read verses uh, 18 through 27 of chapter 2. Um, so I'm excited about this text this morning. Uh, we're going to spend a little bit up, up front talking about why this text is very important for us, and then we're going to um, we'll unpack it um, later on in our time. But I want to begin by reading uh, this text because uh, today, um, as I've already uh, alluded to, uh, this Sunday is a really big deal if you're a believer. Um, shamefully, it's overlooked um, and, and it's not given as much emphasis maybe as some of the other um, super important days of our faith, um, but I believe that God has a powerful word for us today. And I believe uh, this text may come across a little bit jarring. It, it, may, seem, um, it may seem different than uh, some of the messages that we have um, normally. Um, but I think this uh, is very important, and we, we should not ignore what this word is uh, speaking to us. So, 1 John chapter 2, verse number 18. John addresses us as an older man, a very old man at this point in his life, speaking to his uh, disciples and those in the church there that he was an elder in. Um, and he speaks to you and I. Um, with the phrase, little children. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that this is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest, that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing or an unction, a special gift is the idea there. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has or knows the Father also. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has promised us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you. I'm going to ask you to underline that and highlight that several times, but if you want to go ahead and do that, that is so important to hear today. The anointing which you have received, not might receive, not could receive if you achieve a certain status, but you have received from Him, it abides in you, that it's already within us. And you do not need that anyone teach you or show you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true, and it's not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in Him. So a lot of abiding in, a lot of, a lot of conversations about being in the Father, in the Son, and the Father and Son being in us. So clearly John is trying to get us to understand what it means to be in a relationship with God and what it means to be anointed by 
God. And, and again, today is Pentecost Sunday, and without Pentecost Sunday, this text would not even exist. The promises of this text would not be, um, as John says clearly, they would not be to us if this day were not on our Christian calendar. Um, it doesn't get the attention that Christmas or Easter gets, um, but it's kind of just as important. Not even kind of, it is equally as important um, as it brought about the next major step in God's redemption plan. So think of it like this. If Christmas promises, if the promise of Christmas is God with us, and the promise of Easter is that God is for us, the promise of Pentecost is that God is within us. Do you follow that? That we have God with, around, right? In our midst, God for, because He did something for us. And the promise of Pentecost is that it's even better. It's God within. Not just in the building, but in our hearts. Christmas is extraordinary because God came near to those of us who had been drawn away by sin. The promise echoes throughout the ages. God is with us. Easter obviously was the next necessary step in God's plan because God with us and alongside us was was not enough to save us. Because sin was over us and upon us and in us. We needed salvation. We needed redemption. And Easter reminds us that redemption has been paid in full for us, right? Salvation has been given, right? Not only is God with us, but God is for us. You never have to question where you stand with someone who is willing to die for you. Right? So that God is with us. He is for us. Jesus came to die on a cross to make it forever clear that the separation is over. The division is gone. Judgment has passed. Because if God is for us, who, what can possibly be against us? I mean, we ought to just fall on our faces right there and worship the remainder of our time and, and, and from that posture, hear the Word. Because if God is for us, if He means good for us, then what can evil do to us? What bad can separate us from Him? I mean, if God is for us, we are safe. And better than that, we are saved forever. And listen, I mean, come on. If that was all there was... Wouldn't that be enough? I mean, do we deserve any more than that? We don't deserve that, right? I mean, if God is with and God is for and that's all we got, that would be more than enough. The ancients longed for and prayed for. It was promised and they expected from the old days. They understood that Christ fulfilled this promise, right? Because He came and dwelt with us. He died for us. And when He ascended to heaven with a reminder that He would come again, there didn't have to be another pillar. There didn't have to be another act of grace and mercy because the mere act of love displayed in God becoming one of us and the overwhelming work of love when God took on our sin, I mean, what more could we ask for? I mean, we didn't deserve that. So there's no one that that, that stands and taps their feet thinking, what else you got, God? I mean, because those miracles are by all means more than enough. With and for. If with and for were all the blessings God ever gave us, they would be enough to make us eternally secure in Him. If, 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 the, if the message, if the word, if the story stopped at with and for, that would be enough to get us in and secure us forever. But I got even better news. That's good news. And that is the good news. But I got better news for you today. 
Our God isn't simply an enough kind of God. He's an extra kind of God. He's an extravagant God. All right, and you all know that, and I hope that we all can shout about that throughout the time today. And while, of course, we're only promised and we only need enough when it comes to salvation and redemption and assurance that God is with and God is for in many ways, but particularly in one way, our God gives abundantly above and beyond what we could ever imagine. Pentecost is the reminder of just how extravagant our God is in His love, in His favor, in His joy for and over us. Pentecost reminds us and promises us God is not just with us. He isn't just for us. Salvation means God is within us. As in dwelling, as in breathing, as in moving, as in igniting, as in empowering, as in renewing, as in refreshing, as in reviving us from within. That's not religion, right? That's not ritual. That is a dynamic relationship that is only possible through Jesus Christ. He lives in us. He dwells within us. We don't encounter His presence exclusively in holy places on holy days if people call Him down or work Him up. It's not just for some believers. It's for all believers, wherever they are, whoever they are. Right? Not just certain tiers of believers, but in every Christian, God has given, has breathed His Spirit into our hearts. And even the disciples who followed Jesus watched Him and spent weeks with Him after the resurrection. They had no idea this was going to be the next step. They had no idea this was the next phase of His ministry. And that this would be how Jesus would launch His church, His movement, by pouring out His Spirit into the hearts on opening day. And from that day forward. And maybe you know this, maybe you need to know this, but what makes Christianity stand apart? is this supernatural presence of God alive within us and through us. If we treat Christianity like just another religion, with a belief system, a holy place, some sacred music, a set of rules, creeds to confess, prayers to pray, rites to partake in, rituals to keep, Christianity will cease to be anything more than a lifeless, uninspired, out-of-time society. But Christianity is better than that. And for some of us, this may come across as too strong. For others of us, it may sound too good to be true. But I think we need to have this conversation today. Because Christianity is not stuck in history. It's not simply historical that calls for us to believe and know how something happened long ago. But it's also not exclusively experiential. Requiring us to work up or be pumped up in and of ourselves if we're to feel the energy that may be produced by one local group or another. Christianity is not at the mercy of mere flesh and blood, human ingenuity, efforts, or performance. Christianity is an extension of heaven, and it's a work of God. Christianity is based on something that happened, rooted in something that happened, that shares with us that very reality, no matter the time or whatever barrier that may be in place. Christianity extends to us the presence of God. So there's a lot of history. And there is an experience, but it's not stuck in the past. And it's not up to us or dependent on our ability or our environments. God works from any point in any place. He works from history, extending His presence and power forward for all to experience and know by faith. And by looking back and by trusting in. 
God reaches forward and God pours out. If you try to understand Christianity in reference to other religions or organizations, it is rendered watered down and it's a shell of its true self. Maybe it's helpful that we be reminded today that Christianity is not an organization, but the Bible calls the church the body of Christ. As in His literal living, breathing body filled with His people, filled with and by the Holy Spirit. Just think about that. If this is true, what do you imagine the implications of being the body of Christ filled with and given life because of the Holy Spirit? What, is, what do you think the implications are of God within us, more vital to our being than our own heartbeat even? I'd love to talk about that today. But first, we need to look back a little bit more to understand just how significant this day we call Pentecost is. Because again, Pentecost is up there with the other holiest of days in our faith. Think about it this way. Once more, Christmas is God calling us. Easter is God saving us, but Pentecost is God changing us. Right? Christmas is God calling to us, I see you, I hear you, you're not alone. I am with you, and I'm going to show you what you mean to me. And that's what led to Easter, because on Easter, Christ died and rose again, saving us from our sin. But Pentecost is the next step. It's God bringing about real, authentic change in our lives. Because simply letting us out of the jail cell isn't enough to make us different and make us better and break us free. You could sum up Christmas with one word. Emmanuel. God with us, right? God in flesh to show us that God cares, to identify with us, to be alongside us. Whether we get it right or not, God is going to be with us because He loves us. And you could sum up Easter with another word. The word impute. Impute means to transfer something from someone to someone else. Impute means that, hey, you committed sin, but I'm going to take that sin off of you and I'm going to put it on somebody else, right? Impute means that God saw us in our sin and Christ came in perfection and He took our sin off of our hearts and put it on His back. And then when he died, it's better, right? Because Jesus, his righteousness was taken off of him and put on us. So there was a double imputation there, right? That Christ took our sin and we received his righteousness. So what did we do to get it? Nothing at all, right? That's why we worship, right? We don't worship to get God to do something. We worship because God has done something. That's why there's always a song to sing. And always a reason to shout. Pentecost, though, it's more than just having a right standing with God about us being in Christ. It's about Christ being in us. Which is why you could have a couple of words for Pentecost. Impart or indwell or indwelling. Impart means something was given to us, right? Not just done for us, but given to us and shared with us, communicated to and given to, made known to and through us. And it's about the indwelling presence of God within us. So I hope this has captured our attention a little bit today to make us realize how important, how foundational this day is for us as believers 
I hope we move a bit closer to the edge of our seats to realize, hey, what does it mean to be filled with the presence of God? Do I have this? Am I not aware of it? What, what, you know, where, what am I missing if I don't realize this and live in, this, in light of this every day? And I can assure you, if you're a believer today, or if you become a believer today, if you trust in Jesus, if you have ever received Him, the presence of God is within you. So I don't want anybody worried as we go deeper. I want to make it clear. If you are a believer, the Spirit of God lives in you and breathes within you, and He will always be with you. Romans 8 9 makes it very clear. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So if... To be honest with you today, if you're someone that you're, you believe, but you've never experienced an internal change, you've never seen yourself move from darkness to light, you, put, you, you believe that Jesus lived and that He died on the cross, but there's never been a personal transaction between you and Him. May this verse open our eyes today and get us thinking at what God might be trying to say to us. Our opening text makes it clear, and again, I made you, I asked you to highlight verse 27. Verse 20 is also a very important one. As we are told, we have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. That we have been anointed with the presence and power of God as a result of our salvation in accordance with the promise of Pentecost. Our text makes it crystal clear that it's easy to miss this. That it's easy to be distracted, or as it says in verse 26, it's easy to be deceived. There's a lot of things working against us to keep us from realizing this. So I want to encourage you that just because you don't feel doesn't mean you don't have and doesn't mean you can't have. Some movement make it seem that this is all about a feeling. It all rests and operates based on our moods, our scenarios, our circumstances playing out just right. But that is not what the Scripture tells us. The Scripture tells us that being Spirit-filled, knowing it and living like it, has nothing to do with our feelings nor anything that we do. It's not based on our feelings, our experience, our circumstances. It's 100% based on what Jesus did and what He has promised us, as the Scripture says clearly, what He has provided us. And verse 27 says, nobody has, has, can, holds this back from you. God has given this to you. I hope that just is breathtaking and and, and a breakthrough for somebody. We simply need to trust the Lord's provision and walk by faith in this reality to know and sense it always no matter how we feel. Because there are days you're not going to feel like it. Part of the good news of our salvation is that our connection with God and our encounter with God doesn't have to be based on feeling, merit, or experience anymore. For the longest time, Many believed it absolutely was based on how you feel, what you've done, or where you've been. In the Old Testament, we rarely read of the Spirit of God dwelling with or around anybody except on very special occasions. The Spirit of God would come upon, not within, but upon a very selective group of people or someone of a very specific group of people for limited times and temporary fashions and under very restrictive, uncertain conditions. It's as if God would give people a taste of what it could be like, but they quickly realized it wasn't possible. To understand how selective and conditional this was, in ancient Israel, the presence of God was said to be walled off in a very holy place. 
in a veiled area or room of the temple. Originally, this temple was a traveling tent set up here and there, but eventually it became a very monolithic, very sacred site in Jerusalem. And in the temple, there was a practice of anointing that the very special, very selected group of people would go through with hopes that this might extend the presence of God to them. That they might get a taste or a glimpse or a dose of what they only dreamed about. In the ancient world, oil was a symbol of divine presence, particularly olive oil. In the Jewish law and the faith tradition, the holiest of all people would receive anointing of oil to extend the presence of God to them, albeit in limited small doses. This anointing served to set them apart and show them approved for service. But nothing really changed. It just made them feel a little special. They would get to enter the holy place once a year and catch a glimpse of what God was like, what He might be up to. If you read the stories of Moses and the books of Exodus and Numbers, his, he and his people, he and his leadership, his elders, they got to witness things that only are described in brevity. And every time they encountered God or saw something that might translate to prosperity or power for the nation, there would be this qualifier in the story how they were only getting a limited, only getting a preview of what God really was like. They would beg for God's presence. They would beg for God's anointing. They would beg for God's provisions. And God would say to them, I can't give you all that I would like to. Because there's so much working against you between us that you don't realize yet. They had to cover their faces, hide behind rocks, go through rituals and ceremonies. And all this was to emphasize that a better way would one day come. This was just a preview. Even though none of this was essential for being forgiven, the sacrifices applied to everybody. These experiences appealed to the desire of every heart. The desire that was within everyone to not just receive a pardon from God, but to know the presence of God. And that same desire is within all of you. The Levites and those selected to serve from within would go to these rituals day after day with hopes to catch a glimpse of God and maybe vicariously they could share it with everybody else. The book of Exodus tells us that Moses would prepare a mixture of olive oil and other elements and other uh, uh, things. And he would mix it up in a bowl, like, in a vase like this, and pour it out in a basin. And here's what the Scripture tells Moses to do to those called to serve. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generation. It shall be poured on the body, it shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person. And you shall make no other like it in composition. So that was the big qualifier. No ordinary person could even receive the anointing. So that's a little bit rough, right? And it's a little bit restrictive. I don't know how I feel about that. That was the condition of the ancient world where the law condemned. And God was separated from everybody. He goes on. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, whoever puts it on any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. So it wasn't even in the system to give to anybody, but just these few people. 
It wasn't guaranteed much. As time went on, Israel began to organize politically. And the idea of sharing this sort of anointing with leaders, with tribal or national leaders, was considered. And the priests decided they ought to pray over and anoint their leaders like they do those who serve in the temple. So when Saul was appointed the first king of Israel, the prophet and priest Samuel visited him, anointed him, and the Scripture says the Spirit of God rushed on him. And he began to speak boldly on behalf of God. But Saul never truly served the Lord. And it was clear whatever happened to him was temporary at best because he went away in rebellion and led the nation to destruction. Saul would soon be replaced. And long before there was actual, he was actually off the throne, God called Samuel to visit another and prepare another candidate who was years from being king. And in an episode that we all are familiar with, we get to see a clear preview of how God would relate to all of us in the future. So God tells Samuel to fill up his horn with oil and go to Bethlehem, to Jesse's house, and anoint the next king. And the story goes that Samuel goes to Bethlehem and he sees these seven very strong, very handsome, very tall, capable men of serving and leading the nation. And Samuel says, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And time after time, person after person, God says, do not anoint them. They are not the chosen one. But then God gives a preview of the new covenant when He tells Samuel how he's looking for the next king. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So in this we see a preview of the favor that would come to us one day as they call little David in from the shepherd field. He sent and brought him in. He was ruddy. He had beautiful eyes. He was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The oil brought God's presence on David, and David would show the nation that what it was like to be a man after God's own heart. But even David, as God's anointed, that role would tragically end. As time would pass, he would serve lesser passions, putting his flesh before the Spirit of God. And David, like many others, stumbled because the covenant they had with God and the stipulations of it were just temporary. Their system didn't bring God near. It emphasized how far away he was. Their system didn't punctuate that God was for them. It really made clear how much they were opposed to God in their flesh. How could it honestly bring God's presence within anyone? And one had to wonder if the wall could be torn down, if the sin could be washed away, maybe God's presence could be here to stay. And that's exactly what we celebrate as Christians. Because God has drawn near. It's because He has made it clear that He is for us. He's done something for us. And we can trust that if God is within us, it can be a reality we can all believe and know and experience for ourselves. And the amazing part of the new covenant is this. God's anointing is no longer prohibitively selective or conditional because Jesus has promised and provided this reality to all who Believe. All who believe. The oil has been poured already in advance for you. Jesus promised this, that there was more to come than just His earthly ministry. He teased it out before He died. 
I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him. He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. And because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. In that day, you'll know the incarnation showed that Jesus is God. Salvation makes us in Christ and the promise of Pentecost is that Christ is in us. On Pentecost all those years ago, this was realized and ever since all who trust that God has drawn near, all that believe that Jesus washed them clean, welcome Him into their hearts. By faith, we can receive God's favor and His presence. We are no longer outsiders. We are no longer merely ordinary. Those labels, those walls are gone. Here's something that John clues us in on in our text and makes it so much sense when we consider how all this is built up. Just as what John calls the last hour, just just as God has brought His presence to the heart of people in this brand new dynamic and authentic way, John warns us that it may be easy for us to miss this and to lose sight of this. And this is really the whole point of this message today. Just as heaven has started moving towards hearts, hell combats and competes for us every day. That's why this is not just a sweet promise that I remind us of, oh, God's within you. This Scripture warns us that if we don't take serious the pursuit that God is having for us, we might miss and be distracted and be deceived. Just as God has drawn near and done for and moved into, the enemy and all of hell's hounds and forces began moving in for us in a brand new, fierceful way. Before, they didn't have to worry because they didn't have force or possession of us. But when God started moving and claiming and reclaiming, hell upped its ante to retain and maintain its dominion over you and me. That's what John is telling us in our opening verses. He says, little children, know that there is a spirit, there is a power, there is an antichrist presence that's trying to shut off, shut you off from the true presence of God. See, we have never known a reality where God was not near and for and within. For many of us, we've been brought up in church and we haven't ever considered this. But this means all the more we need to realize that the enemy is trying to unplug us from this reality, distract us, and deceive us from this truth. Do not be mistaken. Do not be fooled. Don't be short-sighted to the fact that there is an enemy in our world. There is an antichrist spirit present and active every single day, vying for our attention, our affections, and our allegiance. Back up in verse number 16 and 17, very familiar scriptures that you all know. John says, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. And we, we know those so well because we fall for them so often, don't we? The Antichrist spirit competes for your trust, your looks, your efforts, your desires for your soul. And at the very core, you know what it's trying to do? It's trying 
to distance us from God's nearness, veil us from God's favor, and overpower God's presence within you and me. And if we're not diligent, this will happen. Come on, if we're being honest, in some ways, in a lot of ways, for some of us, in many ways, this has already happened, hasn't it? Maybe this explains the disconnect in many of our lives. We've been focused in on, plugged into the wrong source, the wrong teaching. We've been taking cues from the, from the world in every way, haven't we? Let me ask you, are we living as if we've been defiled by the world rather than anointed by God? For many of us, the only answer is yes, we have. From our thoughts to our words to our intentions to our investments to our reactions and our responses, the Antichrist spirit has taken us to places we ought not to be, hasn't it? Whereas God says that we are free, we've become slaves, haven't we? Whereas God says we can be pure, we've been defiled. Whereas God says we've been regenerated, we've become degenerated. Whereas God has called us to be separate and holy, distinct and devoted, we've blended, we've compromised, we've plunged our hands into the filth of the world, and we think there's no coming back. We've listened to the voice of the enemy saying, you can do no better, you deserve no better. We've accepted labels and identities that God says we don't have to wear or bear anymore. And you know what it comes down to? Whereas God has called us extraordinary, we've accepted ordinary. Whereas God says Christian means something, it means different, it means special, it means anointed, we've blended, we've compromised, we've accepted that it's ordinary. He came outside the camp and called us His own And whereas God says there's an anointing, we've chased after counterfeit contrary spirits, haven't we? We've accepted sin. We've accepted defeat. We've accepted fear. We've accepted anxiety. We've accepted greed and jealousy and hatred and bitterness, lust and addiction, hopelessness and unbelief. We've accepted these lifestyles and emotions that God has saved us from. Our generation today is more afraid, more strung out, more exhausted, more unforgiving, more addicted, more broken than any other before. We've accepted the world's anointing, ignoring heavens. And in doing so, we've denied the Father's authority over us and the Son's favor for us, haven't we? We're betraying who Christ made us to be. And this is not a word of condemnation. This is a word of salvation. It's a word of breakthrough for somebody today for you to step out and rise up and cry out and receive from heaven a new beginning. The Scripture tells us, John says I in verse 21, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. I'm not writing to you to fuss at you or condemn you. I'm writing to you because you know better. And you know that there is a competing anointing in the world. You know there's an antichrist spirit in the world. And you've let your guard down. And you've turned away from God's anointing. And you've let the world anoint you with so many lesser things. He reminds us that if we are under God's authority and in the Son's favor, then that we abide in Him. And He abides in us. And again, look at verse 26 and 27. 
These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you. And you do not need anyone teach you or show you something that you haven't already been given. That This same anointing teaches you concerning all things. And is true. And is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you will abide in Him. God wants to anoint you with His presence and power today. If you're a Christian, He's already with you and for you and within you. And maybe we've fallen asleep at this. Or somehow, and, and if so, we need to wake up and cry out to God and say, God, I don't want to miss this. And say, God, I want to be different. I want to stand out in the world as your child. I want to break free. Many of us, we need to consider what spirits we're living by and walking by. Later on in chapter 4, John says we need to try the spirits that we are living by. And we need to realize that Christ is within us. He's greater than these things that are competing for our affection and our attention. We need to consider the way that we act and see and think. All the filters that we see through. Ask ourselves, are these of God? You know what I know? A lot of our values and a lot of the ways that we live, the way we handle ourselves professionally... The way, we, the way we think politically, our family ideals, the way we handle sexuality, money, anything else. Things have gotten their hooks in us that are not of God. And if we, we, need, we need to confess they are anti-Christ. They're ungodly. As we process and take in and respond to everything like the world has trained us to, we ought to realize what has happened to us. Many of our values and ideals are not from or of God. And that explains the separation between our potential and our reality, between how we worship and how we walk. But God is trying to set us free. How about we rise up and declare that we are going to choose God's way of love and faith, faith and grace and purity and holiness? How about we spread the spirit of Pentecost into our worlds? How different might they be if we loved instead of hated? If we forgave instead of judging. If we served instead of walking by or standing still. If we valued Him more than we value anything else. Let me just ask you a real simple, novel question. What if we obeyed God instead of obeying the world? How different our lives might be. I mean, think about all the petty stuff that we allow the world to keep us from doing for God. Think about all the things we allow the world to dominate us over, whereas God gets what's left over. Come on. Think about how often we say, well, I just can't do that, God. I've got this going on. And God says, what? Are you immersed into the, 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 the cesspool that I saved you from? I mean, shame on me for saying to God, God, I can't obey you today. I've got other things that i got to obey. I mean, God says, I have poured out my spirit for you. I have given you unlimited, unmerited favor. And I'm just standing back like, I don't care. I'm busy. I don't feel good. God, if you work beside them, you'd know. If you were married to them, you'd know. And God says, I got a lot, of, a lot more than just y'all two. Shame on us. How often do we obey the world every day, right? We listen to the world's beat of the drum every single day in all that we should pray and fast from the world to break our wills from being obedient to the world. 
Isn't that what John's trying to get us to see? That we've been deceived? We make so many excuses for not obeying God because we have to obey the world, don't we? God help us. God forgive us. God deliver us. Come on, how different would it be if we invested in God's kingdom first instead of the stuff that's going to pass away? How different would it be if we worshiped instead of worrying? Come on. How different would it be if we worshiped instead of whining? If we live for His glory instead of the world's glory. If we set our attention and our affection and our allegiance on Him instead of everything else. Jesus says there's anointing for you today. You don't need to be enlightened by the world. You have the Word of God that is speaking to you directly. And that's not saying you shouldn't study and prepare and work and train and counsel and exercise or whatever else. But if there is divine help on the table to help you go further than the world can't help you go, right? Or the world might be working against you. If there's divine favor to help fill in the gaps, why not seek? Why not knock? Why not ask for it? I mean, what did Jesus say in Luke chapter 11? I tell you, ask, it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. And he makes, it, he makes this scenario for us. What father among you, if his son asks for fish, will you instead give him a serpent? And then he makes this all jaw gap. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit in His anointing to those that ask? I mean, if you know how to say yes to somebody that you love, how much more do you think your heavenly Father who loves you extraordinarily if you ask for an anointing of His presence. We've allowed the world to set the tempo and the word, word has taken the back seat. We've given free reign to the world and put limits on God rather than letting the Word empower us with heaven and free us from the world. And that explains why our priorities are so out of sorts. But ultimately, our eternal help and hope is from God. What if we've been deceived? What if we've accepted deception as our reality? And all I ask for you is, is to look at verse 20 and, and think about what it says to you and look at verse 27. And until those verses say anything else than what I think they say clearly to us, we can't get away from this, church. Do you take those promises, those declarations from God seriously? I mean, if they're true, what might we be missing out on? If you're here today and you want to wake up to God's anointing, how about you make a statement today? How about you step up? And how about you ask God for the anointing that you might have been missing out on? That you might have slept on? In the churches, we don't ask people to go public for our own glory as much as it is for your good. Because when you can be bold in here, it prepares you to be bold out there. And maybe you want to come forward today and declare you're cutting off anything that's anti-Christ. Anything that's blinding you and distracting you of divine anointing. Would you be so bold to take that stance today? Maybe you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior and you're ready for that next step. Let me encourage you though. It's not the first step. Because that belongs to God. 
He's already stepped towards you. He's already here with us and for us. His presence can be within all of us. The anointing, the oil has been poured. God has drawn near. The anointing is right here. Will you receive it? Why not? Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. God, I thank you that you have anointed us all with your presence. But God, somebody here today, they've read this text and they've heard your voice and you have revealed to them. They have accepted an antichrist anointing. They've accepted the world's anointing and they've missed out on yours. They've been deceived and distracted. And they've put the world first. It may not be something evil or grievous. It could just be something that is just not as important as you. Father, whatever it is, whoever it is, God, I pray you would give them the boldness to say, Father, I want this anointing from God. If they're a Christian, they've got it. They just need to wake up to it. And if somebody here today is not a believer, God, help us. Help us to open our eyes. Lord, bring us to a place of repentance, a place of surrender, that this day might change somebody's life. God, remind us that we are not ordinary. We are extraordinary children of the Father. And God, I pray that the world would recognize that this week as you pour us out into the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.